Well, do take uh, a Bible or your device and turn to Colossians chapter 1. From five years of so-called divinity lessons at schools, the one thing I remember was the order of Paul's letters. Follow A-E-I-O-U, as in learning the vowels. Galatians, E, Ephesians, A-E-I, Philippians, A-E-I-O, Colossians, and then you have to cheat with Thessalonians and pronounce it Thessalonians. But apart from that, um, so you now know how to find Colossians. You'll never forget that, come on. Just before we read, uh, let's ask the question, why this letter? Why did the Apostle Paul write to the church in Colossae, which if you're interested in geography is about 100 miles inland east from Ephesus on the western Turkish coast? Um, well, if you've got it there open, uh, just flick over to chapter 2, verse 4. There's a hint, I think, here in verse 4 of chapter 2. Paul says, I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Delusion from plausible arguments. They, they seem to make sense, but they're actually going to deceive you. Or just flick down to verse 8 there. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. So things that actually come from philosophical thinking and are empty and deceive you, these are the kind of things that the Apostle Paul is trying to steer the church away from because he's aware that they have these influences upon them. And it seems that these influences from within the church rather than from false teachers or outside teachers coming in. Well, that's just to kind of give us a flavor as to why this letter is important and why it's a letter that, that really is talking about maturity as a Christian. And it's saying that maturity as a Christian comes from a growing conviction of the sufficiency of Christ. And I guess if there's one little phrase that I, I'd want you to remember from this series in Colossians, it's just those four words, the sufficiency of Christ. So, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, let's pray together. 
Father, we sang just now about you, the speaking God, speaking through your word. And we pray that each of us now would know in our hearts that you are speaking to us through your word, not audibly, but nonetheless truly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, we had two antique items in our home, and I'm not talking about my parents here. Um, one was a, a beautiful Chinese vase we used to have at the top of the stairs, uh, and the other was a nest of carved Japanese tables, sort of co three uh, coffee tables. Now, the vase proved to be definitely what we thought it was. You know how these things come down through the family and people are never quite sure who acquired it when. But if I remember rightly, it realized quite a nice tidy sum of money. The nest of so-called Japanese tables proved to be absolutely worthless and probably not Japanese at all. Well, has anyone ever challenged you as to whether you really are the genuine article? You claim to be a Christian or they think you're a Christian and they say, are you really a Christian? And maybe you sometimes think about it yourself. You sometimes wonder, am I really a Christian? Or maybe someone suggests, look, you, you started well. You've got the basics there. You know that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to heaven when you die. That's great, but you know, you need to move on from that. You need to add some extra beliefs, maybe some extra practices. And of course, there's something quite plausible about that, isn't there? Because who of us would dare say, if we're Christians, well, I've reached a level of maturity and I don't need to grow anymore. But of course, all of us think, yeah, no, I'm, I could do with growing a bit of maturity as a Christian. So this has got a certain plausibility that you need more than you started with in Christ and the gospel that you were taught. Well, the Apostle Paul addresses these issues in the opening of Colossians with a word of reassurance. That's where he begins. It's reassurance. And the first thing he wants to reassure these loyal believers, he calls them in verse 2, the saints and faithful brothers. There's a certain loyalty that he can see in them, these brothers and sisters. And he says, you are true Christians. I want you to know that you are true Christians, verses 3 to 5a. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What are the hallmarks of a true Christian? Well, here says Paul, there's a classic trio, faith, love, and hope. And he sees it in them, and he thanks God for this as he hears from Epaphras the report of, first of all, their faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4a. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. A genuine Christian has been given faith in Christ Jesus. So they are confident, if you flick down to verse 20 of chapter 1, they are confident that that. God, through Christ, has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
God has taken the initiative. This was something that pleased God, verse 19. And if you go to verse 13, you'll see that it's described this way, that God has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we put our trust in the Son, in Christ, who brings about the forgiveness of sins through His blood, His sacrificial death on the cross. And that's where you begin as a Christian, isn't it? And that is a hallmark of a true Christian, someone who knows that and has put their trust in Christ and received that reconciliation. And reconciliation is such a precious and important thing, isn't it? I'm sure you, you follow the news as I do and are aware that in our country at the moment there are a number of increasingly bitter industrial disputes and reconciliation seems very hard to achieve, and people, their positions are hardening, and you know, one threatens to take the other to court. Well, that hardly helps, does it, in terms of reconciliation? How amazing, then, that God, who knows the worst about us, He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows the things we've thought about Him, the things we've thought about, things that we know perfectly well He abhors and hates, but we have thought them and entertained those thoughts. And yet, he was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ Jesus, and by the death of his Son to achieve reconciliation with us by forgiving us all our sins. How we should thank God. That's where Paul begins, isn't it? It's a note of thanks, verse 3. We always thank God when we hear of your faith in Christ Jesus, because we know what it means. We know that it means you've been reconciled with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And if that's true of you, then you should thank God that your faith is in Christ Jesus, just as anyone you know around in the church family or in your family or a friend or a colleague that you know has their faith in Christ Jesus. That should be a cause of thanksgiving because it's the first hallmark of a true Christian. The second is there in the second half of verse 4. Love for all the saints. We've heard of your love that you have for all the saints. Now, you will know that Jesus said the night before he died that, that this kind of sacrificial love, the kind of love he had in laying down his life for his followers was to be the mark of the true follower of Christ. This is how they'll know that you're my followers, because of your love for one another. And the word that's used um, is often referred to as, well, the, the word literally translate, transliterated is agape love. And some people say, well, it's a special Christian love. Well, it, it's, it's not a special Christian love, actually. Uh, one of the sad things about Colossians, if you go to the end of the book, um, is, well, it's not sad in Colossians, but it is when you compare it with 2 Timothy. In 4 verse 14, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, that's the writer of Luke and Acts, greets you, as does Demas. Well, that's, that's great to hear about Demas, except that years later, when you read 2 Timothy 4, you hear this about Demas. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me 
and gone to Thessalonica. It's really sad. But the word that's used for loving the present world is the agape word. So it's not a, a religious, it's not about religious affection. It's not exclusive to things to do with God. It's actually a very appropriate word for Christians, but it's actually about devotion, because Demas has now devoted himself to this world, maybe to the pursuit of money, or comfort, or whatever it is, or popularity, or status. We're not told the details, but we know he's now devoted to the world. So sad. But the word is about devotion, and that actually is a mark of a Christian, that we are devoted to one another. Back to chapter 1, verse 4 of Colossians. We've heard of the love that you have, the devotion that you have for all the saints. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, how Paul puts in that little word, all. Yes, all the saints. Not just the ones you like in church or find easy to rub along with. No, the other ones as well. And of course, love is not talking about a feeling that you have. You may not have very great feelings towards one another, just as sometimes if you're married, you're to love your, your wife or your husband, but you may not have great feelings at the time, but you're still to love them and be devoted to them. And so in the same way, to be, we're to be devoted to one another. And it's interesting, isn't it, how Paul uses the word saints for all the saints. Did you know that you're surrounded by saints this morning as you sit there? Um, because that's the word for the Christian in the New Testament. And yet what a mixture we are. Look at, the, look at the people around you. What an unlikely bunch to be gathered in one place on a Sunday morning in Richmond. So many different nationalities, ethnic backgrounds, different colors, mother tongues, different social classes, educational backgrounds and achievements cultural backgrounds, even Christian backgrounds. What a mixture we are. What on earth do we have in common? Well, of course, the answer is we have the same Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so we view each other not as foreigners, but as family to be loved. And yes, in your family, you might have one or two awkward customers. You might be what the awkward customer, but you still want to be loved, don't you? And you still want to love those members of your family. And this family is made up of saints. In other words, holy ones, set apart for God. That's what the word means. Now, we know if we know our Bibles and we know our hearts, that if we claim to be without sin as Christians, we deceive ourselves. The Apostle John says that in 1 John 1. But isn't it wonderful to know that nonetheless, God chooses through the apostle to call us not sinners, but saints. So if you're a Christian, you're a saint, you're set apart by God for him. And one of the great hallmarks that you're a Christian is that you look at every other Christian as a saint and someone that you're going to love, whoever they are. You're going to be devoted to their care, their welfare. You're going to put them ahead of yourself, consider their interests before your interests. And my friends, this is supernatural. Look at the end of verse 8. As Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit, this is only something that could be enabled by God's Holy Spirit. It's a hallmark of a true Christian, love for all the saints. Thirdly, hope. 
Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? In fact, it's quite a surprise if you look at the beginning of verse 5. Do you see how it is not the third in the list, strictly speaking? Not in the way that we would normally list things. You know, we, 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 we've heard of your faith, of your love, and of your hope. No, it doesn't actually say it that way. He says, we've heard of your faith, and of the love you have, because of the hope. It's interesting, isn't it? Because of the hope. So what he's saying is that there's a sense in which hope is not added as the third in the list, but it's rather the source from which flow faith and love. Interesting how, again, at the end of the chapter, or towards the end in verse 23, uh, Paul talks about the hope of the gospel you heard. The gospel was all about hope. Or back to verse 12 in chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It's an inheritance. It's coming to you one day. Now, if you've got a, a relative who's got some stuff, some money, and they tell you, by the way, I've put you in my will. I've left you a legacy. They might even tell you how much or what they're leaving to you. Uh, now, it's very hard not to hope they're going to die, isn't it, at that point? <laughs> but, um, you control yourself, um, and you say, well, thank you very much, that's most kind. How long have you... No, sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the hope of inheritance that you're going to benefit one day. Not yet, but down the tracks in the future. And heaven is like that. It's, it's the inheritance that's coming to us, except this time we know we're going to get it. And the only person who has to die is us, unless Jesus comes first. Hope is about something in the future, isn't it? Maybe uh, you're at school or college and you're really looking forward to the end of term. Um, Easter is over now. It's, I'm afraid you've got to wait till the summer, but at least the summer is coming gradually, a day at a time. Or maybe you're in working life and you're, it's really grueling at the moment, but you know you've got that holiday booked in the sun. And so you've got this hope that you're going to survive until the holiday. Well, Christians have their hope placed not at the end of term or in the summer holiday, well, look at chapter 3. Look at where the Christian's hope is based in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, spiritually speaking, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then look at this, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, what a prospect. That's the future for the Christian. That's the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And Christians know where they're going to go when they die. So for the Christian facing the prospect of death, it's completely different than for the unbeliever. We're not afraid of death. It's very interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you've observed this in our society, but it seems to me um, that in the last decade or two, <clears throat> our society has got increasingly unable to accept its mortality, that we're all going to die. You know, every day that goes by, we're actually, sorry to remind you, but uh, a day closer to the day of our death. 
day closer to the end, but that is the reality. And as we get older, we discover that we can't do the things we used to be able to do, etc. And and it's okay if you're a Christian, because your hope is not based on trying to extend this present existence as long as possible in this age. Your hope is based in a world to come. So death is not a disaster for the Christian. Death is just the doorway into a glorious new world. Well, I don't know if that's your observation too, but certainly that's that's mine. And so we as Christians should be, as has often been the case in Christian history, we should be the people who die well, differently from other people, that we face our mortality differently from other people because we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. We have an inheritance that can be never taken away from us. We know where we're going when we die. And as Paul writes to these Christians, he's so thankful for the reality of their Christian lives. And he wants them to be thankful too. And he wants us to be thankful. Faith in Christ, love for all the saints, based on the hope laid up for us in heaven, we thank God when we pray for you because we've heard that these things are true of you. So you are true Christians. Let me assure you that whatever other people may say about you, whatever you sometimes think about yourself, if these things are true of you, you also are a true Christian. Be reassured. Secondly, let me reassure you, says Paul, that you heard the true gospel. It's not just that you are true Christians, but you heard the true gospel, verse 5b to 8. Now, it's great, isn't it, to know that when you, when you die, you're going to go to heaven, that Jesus died for your sins. But, says someone, there's so much more you need to know, so much more you need to have. These are just the basics. You need to graduate from these. You need to mature. Again, as we were thinking earlier, it sounds so plausible. But is it really true? Well, the apostle says, let me remind you how this faith, love, and hope came about. Verse 5b. Of this, of these things, you have heard before, earlier, in the word of the truth, the gospel. Now, please note, it's a word. And what is a word? Well, it's shorthand for a message. It's a message that you heard and received. The true gospel is a message that we hear, a message in words. Yes, about a powerful intervention of God in human history, sure, but it comes to us not as a powerful intervention in itself, but as just a message about a powerful intervention. It's not a repetition of the events of what Jesus did and taught, or what happened in the the Old Testament, for example. It is a record of these things, not a repetition. Or to put it another way, I was reading a book recently about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and I found it an extremely helpful book, and it, it said at one point that the true Christian is a word believer rather than a sign believer. Now, what's that talking about? Well, do you remember how people came up to Jesus? If you remember the Mark drama, this, this is recorded in that. How, and they demanded a sign. 
I was the Pharisee, I think. Who was I the Pharisee who demanded the sign? I can't remember. Uh, I think I might have been. Um, <clears throat> and Jesus wouldn't play that game. Um, and when, do you remember in the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man dies and says to Jesus, or in the story says to Abraham, or says to God, what, please send someone to, to tell my brothers that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Um, and, and Jesus basically makes the point that they have the scriptures. And he, said, well, even, and he says, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe it. Even if they have in front of their eyes a miracle done, a resurrection from the dead, they still won't believe because of the sign. But they have the word. They have the message of God. And the Christian faith is about receiving that message and believing it. It's not about asking for a repetition of the deeds and the miracles. Like someone might say, oh, I hear there's a magic trick that's amazing, and, and, but I, I want to see it for myself. I want a private performance. I want to have it done in front of my eyes before I actually believe that that trick is true. No. There was a public demonstration in history, in Christ Jesus, witnessed by the apostles. Their testimony has been passed to us. The gospel is that message, and we believe it if we're Christians. The word. Verse 5b. Of this you have heard in the word. The gospel. And it's the word of the truth. And when we become Christians, we accept that this word is true. That's one of the marks of being a Christian. That's, is that we accept that this is true. Now, we live in a culture which is, has a very strange relationship with the concept of truth. A lot of people don't actually believe there is such a thing as truth. And yet, when they go to the pharmacy and get their prescription, strangely, they slip back into wanting a category of truth and to be given the correct medicine that is proven to do the job rather than any old medicine that the pharmacy wants to get rid of at the time. Now, suddenly the concept of that there is a true and a false and that these things are actual real categories, suddenly that kicks back in, doesn't it? There's no escaping that the gospel is a message of truth, the word of the truth. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that actually when push comes to shove, people want truth. I don't know whether you're... The, the internet is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But it's utterly distracting. Don't you find in your life? There are these, they just want your attention. That's what the internet, what's what all the search engines and the algorithms are trying, they're trying to grab your attention. So they keep throwing things up in that right-hand column, you know, where, and say, how about this? How about that? Uh, and some of you are paid to make us do that. I know that, but uh, that's another story. Um, <clears throat> And yet we want to know the truth. And one of the reasons why we go into these engines and we search these things, I, I mean, I've been trying to understand air source heat pumps recently. Isn't that exciting? Can you get rid of the gas boiler and replace it with an air source heat pump? Is it as efficient or isn't it? What is the truth about air source heat pumps? Well, I have an answer, but I'm not going to tell you. But I actually do want to know the truth, and I think even the search engines and things, people are actually trying to discover what is true about this. 
Well, the gospel is a message of truth, the word of the truth, the gospel. It came to you, verse 6, as, as it were a person coming to you, presented itself to you, and then he changes the metaphor. It's bearing fruit and increasing, like a seed that's sown. And it's done, it's done this across the world, as indeed, verse 6, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, one of our dangers is that we live in a, a, a really hard place for the gospel here. Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. We live in a very affluent part of a very affluent society. So there's a sense in which it's no surprise that the, the seed finds it hard to penetrate the ground where we live. But my friends, there are parts of the world, lift up your eyes and look across the world and see what God has been doing in the last few decades even. I think of when I was a student many years ago, I know, but... Uh, the kingdom of Nepal was reckoned to have fewer than 50 believers. Do you know how many there are now? Well over 50,000. What happened? Well, this is what happened. The gospel, the word of the truth, is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. Lift up your eyes and see what God is doing in this world. Oh, this is true. And what is this message? And this is where we end. What is this message about? Well, look at the end of verse 6. Um, As it also does, bearing fruit and increasing among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth. Now, some people say, well, I heard this recently from someone, I'd like to become a Christian, but I'm just not sure I could keep it up. Then I want to say to them, well, you've not understood grace then, have you? Because it's not about our commitment to God and whether we can keep it up. It's about his commitment to us, to preserve us and to enable us to persevere. Or I've heard recently someone saying, well, you're saying I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I don't think I am good enough to to call myself a Christian. And I want to say, well, I have said to them, then you, you don't understand grace. It's not about being good enough. The Word of God says no one is good, not even one. Well, none of us, therefore, according to God's Word, can stand up and say, well, I'm the exception. I'm good enough for God. No, none of us. That's where grace kicks in. It's because of grace. It's a gift. It's not something you contribute to. It's not like a sort of pension scheme where you know, the, the employer will chuck in a percentage and you chuck in a percentage of your pay and together you get a pension. Uh, it's not like you do your bit, God does his bit, put them together, hey, there's your salvation, there's your future hope. No, it's not like that at all. It's pure gift. And it's a gift that goes on giving. Do you see how Paul says in verse 6, since the day you heard it, it does among you bear fruit and increase. And one of the things about being a Christian and understanding the gospel is that the gospel is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel of grace is for the whole of the Christian life. And as you go on as a Christian, you discover that you, yes, you sin and you disappoint yourself and you sometimes disgust yourself. And you do things that you think, a Christian shouldn't do that, a Christian shouldn't think that, a Christian shouldn't say that. And then you ask yourself, but hang on a minute, on what basis is my security with God? On what basis do I think I'm accepted? 
and I'm a Christian and have a hope in heaven that's never going to be taken away? Is it on the basis of being marked at the end of my life and seeing if I made the grade? Or is it the grace of God, gift that's been given to me? And it's, of course, the latter. And you never graduate from grace. It keeps bearing fruit in your life. Just as you learned it at the beginning from whoever it was. That's the true gospel. If you grasp that, you have the true gospel. And if you have that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that love for all the saints, that hope laid up in heaven, then you are a true Christian. Don't let anyone tell you different. You are the genuine article, and you have the genuine article in your hands. This is not a fake. It's for real. Let's thank God together.